0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 17th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella, hey everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. How's everyone tonight? Good. How you doing? Good. Great.
2: What's going on? Good. What's, what's the day, Evan?
3: 1976. The first space shuttle Enterprise unveiled by NASA. Uh huh.
4: Not awesome launched, launched. Oh, that's Just awesome. Just unveiled. I remember um, being a kid watching the TV, seeing a bunch of people standing on the tarmac, you know, watching it be unveiled, and then playing the theme to Enterprise, the, you know, Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> remember
1: that. But I was devastated when I learned that that the Enterprise was never going to go into orbit. No. But what a jet! Yeah, that's
5: right. It's just a mock up. Yeah, it
1: yeah. a- should have saved the name for the first one to launch, not just the training module.
2: I know a better yeah. day that's coming up, and that would be Friday, the nineteenth. Do You guys know what Friday is?
1: Friday, September um, 19th. Friday, September nineteenth. Uh huh. Sorry, the start of yes. fall.
2: Arr, it's talk like a pirate
5: yes. day. Yes. Oh, how could I forget? It. Didn't we just have that? <laughs> That's a great last day. Year. Last year
3: we mentioned that. Arr. That's an awesome day. It's been a day. year
1: already. It really has. Our major, it has. <laughs> Good thing we're not doing the podcast on Friday.
2: Oh, but can't we pretend? People don't Oh, the whole, the whole
1: day talks is Today's talk like pirates. a ninja day. Knock yourself out.
2: Talk like, you can't talk like a nerd. Actually,
1: today sure you can. is, you can talk, today they is International staggers. Talk Like a Skeptic Day. <laughs> <laughs> You're, you made that up. I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have uh, an interview oh, that we recorded at TAM6 with Ben Goldacre coming up uh, later yeah, ben. in the show. Ben. That's Ben's awesome, Steve. I can't wait. Ben is a cool guy. And uh, then the first news item is about Ben. He, ben Goldacre, who uh, writes for The Guardian and is one of the guys in the UK is writing about science and medicine, uh, he had written a piece about Matthias Rath. You guys familiar with this guy? Only uh, in that I know no. he's a douche. Right, he is a he is a giant douche. He really is. <laughs> so he has a an organization a website you know that sells that. all kinds of snake oil. And uh, what Ben wrote about was him was a wrath selling vitamins in South Africa to AIDS victims, telling them not to take their anti HIV medications, but instead to take his vitamins. You know, this, so there's actual you know a death count that you can attach to that kind of behavior. Yeah. Um so you know Ben called him out on that. Now Rath has a history of suing anyone who criticizes him. He has many many lawsuits, you know, in many countries. You know, anyone who says that what he's doing is not legitimate. He he his response Including in is South to sue. In South
2: Africa where he's Causing the most damage, I yeah, believe.
1: in South Africa and Germany, and again against against the Guardian and Ben Goldacre, and he's won some of those suits, unfortunately. But this recently, uh, he had to withdraw his suit against uh, the Guardian and Ben Goldacre, and he's going to have to pay about a half a million pounds in legal fees as a result, as well. So that was a very good outcome. Uh, of course, we all congratulate Ben on seeing that through. I mean, you know, it's obviously something that cuts very close to home. We spend a lot of our time dishing out a very harsh criticism to a lot of people, some of whom are, you know, heartless charlatans, you know, who can kill people if it lines their pockets and who have a history of defending themselves by intimidating others with lawsuits and Yeah, and they... you know
2: and the, it's very different in England where the laws aren't quite as much on the side of people who are making the statements so it's it's not quite on the side of free speech as it is right. in the US. I think that you know we have a certain amount of protection going for us but in the UK it's fairly easy for someone to sue for uh, libel and slander because once they do, the burden is on the defendant Mm -hmm. as opposed to in the U.S. when the burden Mm. of proof is on the plaintiff. And I am not a lawyer.
1: No, that's correct. Although in England, the one advantage in the U.K. is that… It's pretty standard. If you lose such a lawsuit, you, it's almost automatic that you pay the other side's legal fees. So that's the disincentive right. for frivolous lawsuits.
2: And so, sure enough, he has had to cough
1: up. Yeah, these are these are critical victories for free speech for skeptics everywhere. You know, who are trying to um, you know point out, especially this kind of really destructive behavior. So uh, this is this is, I think, a very important victory. So congratulations, Ben. Good hey job, ben. ben. The next news item the Hubble finds a mystery object that genuinely has astronomers baffled. Astronomers are baffled. <laughs> they are, they are genuinely f- baffled. Are they flummoxed? And flummoxed. So what
5: is it, yeah, this Steve? This is pretty interesting. This is interesting. That that's that's the question, Jay. It's really nobody knows. According to a paper that's about to appear in the Astrophysical Journal, something extraordinary, never before seen by astronomers, appeared in 2006. I was a little disappointed that it was two years ago. Like, what, we're just hearing about this now? But to this day, it's not known what the hell it was or if it will ever appear again. Um, it started with the Supernova Cosmology Project in February 2006 using Hubble, looking for a supernovae in February a uh, previously unknown object just started getting brighter and brighter and brighter and, and it just did not stop and this continued for about 100 days at that point it it's pretty much stopped getting brighter and bigger and uh, and then just started to symmetrically dim for the next 100 days so it was so it's really a perfectly symmetrical uh, light curve where the the dimming is perfectly matched by the uh, by the brightening in the beginning the spectrum of light was also an enigma the spectrum Basically, just shows uh, the rainbow of colors uh, uh, from a light source, but also, of course, includes a non-visible light like UV or radio. And typically, these certain pieces of the spectrum are missing um, from a spectrum. And the lines that are missing shows you what elements must have been uh, near the light source uh, or in the intervening uh, space that that absorbed it. So you've got these emission emission lines, but these emission lines made no sense.
1: Wait, don't you mean absorption lines? Just to be clear, emission lines are different than absorption lines. Emission lines are when are from the body itself that's glowing. Absorption lines are from something intervening that's absorbing the light that was emitted. Yeah,
5: that's that's right. You were right. So this is a this is a a key deficit in our knowledge about this object because if you can't determine what the elements are, the the arrangement of elements um, in the spectrum, then you don't know how red shifted that the the object is. That's one of the, that's one of the reasons why. Quasars were were so, were such a puzzle to uh, astronomers early on, because uh, quasars are so redshifted. They're billions of light years distant. Therefore, their redshift is gargantuan. and And for it took a while for astronomers to actually realize that. Wait a second, hydrogen's way over here.
6: Hydrogen. If it's way over,
5: it's, if it's way over here, it's got to be. It's got to be immensely distant. And that's one of the key insights that led them. That made them realize that. Yeah. That, that these things, that these objects, were so far away. So if we don't even have this information, if we can't kind of kind of get a, a picture of what's going on with the spectra of, from, of this object, then you have no idea how far away this is. Is it in our galaxy? Right. Is it in another galaxy? We we don't know. That's a ball.
4: Is that a like a ball of hydrogen or like some hot pocket of air or or expanding <laughs> space <Not> somewhere? <laughs>
5: <laughs> all we know, all we know is what we saw. It, it was that an an object, some sort of stellar object that that got brighter and brighter, like a like a supernova and then and then dimmed, but it was not typical of any any other object that, that they ever that they've ever seen before.
1: Yeah, so they said specifically it's not a supernova.
2: And uh if you were a pirate, would you call it a quasar?
5: Quasar. <laughs> yes. Oh, no. Good one. I <laughs>
2: suspect that they've be a quasar.
5: So we we <laughs> do have a, a range though. There is a range. This thing must be within a certain range by other distance measurements, and one of them is parallax. Parallax is the the apparent movement of one object due to the movement of a foreground object. So if a, if an object is close enough away, say less than 130 light years, you would see obvious parallax. Uh, we're not seeing that, so that means that this object is more than 130 light years away. So that's the bottom limit right there. So. What's the upper limit? Well, the, the only upper limit that I came across for this thing has to do with hydrogen absorption. And because it's lacking hydrogen absorption in the spectrum, that means that it's it has to be less than 11 billion light years away. So so our range is greater than 120 light years, less than 11 billion light years. Right. Nice range. Yeah. That's, the best that, that, that's, great. that's pretty much the best that they've come up with in two years. So it could be anywhere in the intervening space.
1: But interestingly, given that it could be that there is such a huge range for how far away it could be, they said that it's not in any known galaxy. So there is no galaxy, I guess, on that. that I have
5: either. a problem with that. I have a problem with that because there has been mention of this Bootes constellation they refer to, which is just a constellation of stars within our galaxy, but they refer to it as as a void where there, there's really nothing around it for for many light years apparently. Now there is a Boote's super void. It's a void the, one of the biggest voids in the known universe. It's 250 million light years wide. Now I think they're, they're, they're possibly referring to this. They're saying that it's within this within this specific void. If it could be 130 light years away or Eleven billion light years away. Why do they think it's in a void that's two hundred and fifty million light years across?
1: I don't think it's just that. I mean, my my reading was that it's, just, it's not in any known galaxy. If it were in a galaxy, they're not seeing the galaxy that it's in.
5: Yeah, but I, I, why even mention this? The specific Bootes uh, void or know. constellation? I don't know because that to me that just seems like a red herring.
4: Bob, do we know if it's moving in a direction? Like, or what direction is it moving? No, in? No, there, there was no.
5: It, you know, two hundred days. There's not going to be any. There wasn't really any discernible movement. Now, could it be a new, a new type of supernova? Uh, scientists don't think so. There's a problem with that because it doesn't match any of the known supernova types. The, and the brightening took much longer than normal. Uh, typically, supernovas will, will brighten for 20 days. This one lasted for 100 days. And uh, the spectrum didn't make any sense. The light curve uh, should be asymmetrical for a supernova. They fade more slowly than they brighten. So it, it didn't make any sense.
1: They also said it was not microlensing.
5: Right. The, the light curve doesn't match a, a, a microlensing event. A, microlensing occurs when light's distorted as it travels near a gravitational source. They've ruled that out as well. Um, they've they, It doesn't look like a quasar. I mean, really nothing. They, they put the spectrum through the Sloan Digital Sky Survey database, which has a, just a vast number of objects, and it didn't match anything in there. Uh, it, this is really quite a mystery, and yeah, so I, thing, it's, it's probably interesting a as hell.
1: It's a class of object, which is cool.
5: Yeah. Some so, people have speculated that it's some sort of uh, – because it's so symmetrical and blah, 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 that it could a- be a- some a- sort of sign from a, from an intelligence. But obviously, it's uh, there's nothing that would really give you any confidence in that sort of conclusion. Not yet anyway, but that would be interesting if evidence pointed that way. But, man, I'm not counting on that at all.
1: You think it's like a Death Star blowing up or something?
5: Yep, they were talking about it in the comments.
4: We would need so much more freaking evidence.
1: You can't jump to that. That's an incredible. No, it's conclusion. ridiculous. Well, they thought that about pulsars when they first saw them. They were called LGMs. LGMs, so little, green little, man. Yeah.
5: little Green Men. It was they were it so was, regular.
3: Yeah, it, was it was too regular. Right? They said but, it could only be, have yeah. been created. Or
1: something. But sometimes nature is really regular and symmetrical. So it,
3: right. Uh, when nature is regular.
1: Yeah, you can't jump to a an artificial um, hypothesis. Just because it's right. it's so symmetrical. I'm pretty regular
3: and symmetrical.
2: That's not what I heard.
1: Well, creationism is creeping into the UK. Traditionally, the United States has had a big problem with creationists trying to infiltrate public schools and et cetera. But now, apparently, it's becoming more of a problem in the United Kingdom. And this came to a head recently with comments made by Reverend Professor Michael Rees, who was until very recently the director of education at the Royal Society? Royal Society is, I think, it's the oldest scientific institution, and uh, has a very important position in the UK science community. Uh, he made some controversial statements to to the, and this is a quote from them. An increasing percentage of children in the UK come from families that do not accept the scientific version of the history of the universe and the evolution of species. What do we to do with those children? My experience after having tried to teach biology for 20 years is if one simply gives the impression that such children are wrong, then they are not likely to learn much about science that one really wants to learn. I think a better way forward is to say to them, look, I simply want to present you with a scientific understanding of the history of the universe and how animals and plants and other organisms evolved." He made other comments as well that really sparked a controversy over what exactly is this guy advocating. And be, because he's actually a, a literalist, not just a reverend, but a, a literalist, you know, a lot of people had their eye on this guy and were sort of waiting for this kind of thing to happen, this kind of controversy to crop up. So you know, perhaps that more than as much as anything else is what led to to this incredible controversy. But I still have have a hard time really knowing exactly what this guy was advocating.
2: Well, you know, the society a, a spokesman for the society stepped forward and confirmed that you know what he was saying was in line with what they believed, and that their exact quote was: "Our position is that if young people put forward a creationist perspective." In the classroom, it should be discussed. Mm-hmm. Their whole thing, they're talking about science, so it yeah. can be assumed they're talking about the science classroom, and that's kind of ridiculous just to put it like that. I mean, if you're going to be, if you're going to talk about that subject, then let's be specific. How should it be discussed? Should it mm-hmm. be discussed in the terms of uh, showing them that, for instance, a belief in God can be compatible with you know uh, evolution or should you be telling them that uh there's no way in hell the earth was created in six days Mm -hmm. it's not very educational and it's not very helpful to just throw that out there like that it sounds like a big case of uh covering of asses
1: yeah they definitely the royal society um put out clarifications, quote-unquote, the next day, saying creationism is not science. It should not be taught as science in a science classroom. And, you know, we wholeheartedly defend the teaching of evolution. Uh, but this guy, Reese, you know, has made other statements that are just very, very squirrely. For example, he said, I do believe in taking seriously and respectfully the concerns of students who do not accept the theory of evolution while still introducing them to it. He also made comments about treating creationism and ID, intelligent design, and evolution as worldviews, right? These are different worldviews. So, you know, he's kind of dancing around this topic, and I think that just given that he's a literalist and that he's making these squirrely comments, it certainly seems like he's trying to squeeze in a little teach the controversy through the back door there just by saying we need to be respectful of the students and we need to address their concerns and talk about creationism oh we believe in evolution I'm not saying that evolution is wrong but you know we really need to take we can't just teach evolution we have to address their concerns
2: yeah it almost sounds like he's going for the catching more flies with honey defense yeah and and the thing is that there's something to be said for exploring different ways of reaching kids who are unfortunately growing up in households where their parents are ignorant of the basic tenets of science and uh, you know it is going to be difficult if they've been raised to believe something wholly incompatible with what you're teaching them. You know, you, we do need to look at how we're uh, teaching them, but to make a vague statement that just doesn't jibe at all with anything that we're, we're actually aiming for and then mm-hmm. to run away from it is yeah. kind of cowardly and suspicious.
3: It's just a, a case of this person, I think, trying to be somewhat politically correct, not taking a firm stance one way or the other, trying to please the most people possible with his statement to try and quell any controversy. Just did the opposite, apparently. He he stepped down from his
4: position, too, because of the controversy. Yes. He did,
2: and the really cool thing is that he stepped down when British uh, members of parliament stood up and said, hey, what the hell are you guys talking about? That's not science. And can you imagine that happening in the U.S. where an actual, like, congressperson steps up and, and uh, bats somebody in line, uh, you know, and defends science? It, no. It seems kind of no. foreign. No. No. <laughs> so I, I, I think that the U.K. kind of scores one on that point.
1: Yeah. Although, again, this is in the context of increasing sort of insurgence of, of creationism into the UK and increasing concerns. Um, this, this controversy was you know, all around the science blogosphere for the last week, the last few days. And you know some of the comments, uh, like P.Z. Myers, for example, wrote a lot about this. And he said that, yeah, you can teach students how we know the Earth isn't 6,000 years old. You know how we know there is common descent. You know we we know that the earth is four and a half billion years old, et cetera, et cetera. You can say historically they used they used to think this. You know, 150 years ago, and then this is how we are thinking about life origins changed over time and developed with evidence, that, You know, you could teach everything students yeah. need to know about how science works, about how specific you know be, you know beliefs scientific beliefs came to be, based upon what evidence, what logic, without ever talking about a religious belief or talking about creationism. You don't have to do that. I think that confronting a something that that is a religious belief in the science classroom is the wrong approach. You're better off just saying, in this classroom we are talking about science. This is what science is. This is how scientists come to the conclusions that they come to. And you could achieve all of the objectives that Reese claims is what he was really talking about without... Saying respecting creationism as a worldview, which does has, that has no place in a science classroom, um, some other things that have been going on though is and i don 't know if this is a coincidence, but the Church of England, the apologized to Darwin I yeah, think that, that blew my mind.
3: did
5: he
1: accept blip. that
3: good for yeah. them. <laughs> Did he accept?
2: He couldn't accept. He was roasting in hell with his <laughs> evil Darwinist <laughs> ideas.
1: <laughs> I'm
3: so sorry, Darwin. I'm, I'm <laughs> so sorry
1: time. about that, old chap. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they said it was, it was the wrong thing to do to basically oppress Darwin's views at the time. And that it turns out that whole evolution thing was probably a good idea. Now, in response to that, the pope said, yeah, evolution is fine, but we're not apologizing. He, he refused <laughs> yeah. to apologize. He basically God said, doesn't oh, apologize. yeah. <laughs> it's like you pansies in, in England can apologize to Darwin. The, the Pope's not apologizing to nobody. But, yeah, evolution's fine. You know, The Pope's tired. Right. But the UK's got their own creationist museum now. Good for
4: them. It was just a matter of time. Yeah. Like the UK
3: largely over the years been not influenced by creationism, and it's only making some recent... Advances yes, and strides. Yes,
1: that, that's that's exactly correct. It really has been, uh, at least in in the West, a U.S. phenomenon. But now it is, it is spreading to the U.K.
3: Do we know how much of of it is influenced by Islam as well? Because the Islam population yeah. is on is on a great rise. That
1: is a factor. I know that that Richard Dawkins has pointed that out as a factor that they are you know creating faith schools and and teaching creationism. From their religious perspective, he. All, there others have pointed to, you know, specifically to inf- political influence from the U.S. Have pointed to the Templeton Foundation, which yeah. is dedicated to, oh, yeah. to connecting Merger. science and religion, and they have a lot of money behind that, so they'll give money to anybody who. Will a million say that. dollars, a million dollars a yeah. year
5: to the person who does the most to. To. Join science and religion, right? I've seen yeah, rich well, people
2: die yeah. and leave mansions to their cats, and it's a better use of money than that prize.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. And is it that general? The criteria is that general? Yes. The goal is for science to validate faith. That's the goal. So oh is oh Eg- is Michael Egnor in the uh, running for that prize? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, right. Definitely wants to intermingle those two.
2: You know who a pirate's favorite scientist is?
1: Oh, boy. I can't um, wait to hear.
2: Darwin.
1: Darwin. <laughs> <Dar-ins>. Oh, God.
4: <laughs> Rebecca, get back on your medication as soon as possible.
2: <laughs> I ran out of gin.
4: <laughs> yeah. keep up Have some rum. Keep,
1: keep it up,
5: Rebecca. I'm loving it.
1: Well, let's go on to your email. Do you know what the first email is about? Darwin. Big pharma. Darwin. It's about but 15 sentences. Big Pharma. 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 Oh, this one comes from Nick Vachrot from Arlington, Virginia. And he writes a very long email. I'm going to cut to the question. <laughs> My question is regarding big pharma and specifically fibromyalgia. I'm sorry,
2: Steve, what? Big what?
1: Big pharma. Thank you. And specifically fibromyalgia. I was, was that the Steve Fibro? What the friend who claimed that diseases? Sh- all right, enough. Uh. <laughs> and who claimed that diseases are being made up by drug companies for the sole purpose of creating a market for their medicines? He mentioned fibromyalgia as a perfect example, claiming it to be a disease that anyone can convince themselves they have. This sounded like what Dr. Novello describes as symptoms of life. I wasn't very familiar with the malady at the time to argue, but I tend to defend the pharmaceutical industry when faced with that. What sounds like a conspiracy. Theory. In my subsequent research, I found that there is some debate on it, but that the disease is generally accepted by the medical community as being quote-unquote real. Well, this is actually a complicated question because there's a few components to it. Let's take the first component of does the pharmaceutical industry make up diseases that they could then market their drugs for? And I think there, in my opinion, the answer is a pretty unequivocal no. The pharmaceutical industry in this country, regulated by the FDA, when they market a drug, by definition, it, uh, if you are marketing anything and claiming that it treats or cures or modifies a disease, it's regulated as a drug, right? So the things are are regulated based upon what the kinds of claims that are made for them. But you you don't get to make up your own diseases, though. You know, to say that that your your drug is going to treat something that you yourself. Make up or that a company makes up companies are not in a position to to create or will into existence a new disease. Things like fibromyalgia are that is a diagnosis that emerged from the medical community now I think that that fibromyalgia is a very complicated disease entity that I have a lot of doubts about the way it is classified and diagnosed right now first of all it 's not a disease really, um, even though um, it is. Rec- it is. So, what? What the? It's what condition. Like For regulatory purposes, what the FDA would will consider a disease is not ex- necessarily what we would uh, in medicine use the term specifically disease for, meaning a pathophysiological entity. Sometimes there are clinical syndromes or like a, a recognized entity, but it, we don't understand the pathophysiology, so it may be described purely by the clinical picture that it creates. So a like chronic fatigue syndrome is a syndrome, not really a disease. Fibromyalgia, I think, is better understood that way. Although there are some thoughts about what might be causing it, it's, it's actually um, not well understood. In fact, recent evidence suggests that a lot of people who have the symptoms of fibromyalgia, it may just be the symptoms of an underlying problem like a sleep disorder, in fact, I think a lot of people who have the symptoms that are used to make the diagnosis of fibromyalgia actually have an underlying sleep disorder. Others may have an underlying really? depressive or anxiety disorder. Yes. Interesting. And if you treat people for their sleep disorder, the fibromyalgia symptoms go away. So that's a pretty good indication, mm. at least some of them. Other people may have a, a simmering autoimmune like inflammation of the muscles, and that may be really – if there is something that's really fibromyalgia, I think that's what it is. But I think a lot of people get similar symptoms from for other reasons.
4: Would you consider fibromyalgia kind of like a catch-all for a bunch of – Different types of symptoms, then?
1: Yeah, I think it's what we call a garbage pail diagnosis. You know, if you just get people who have symptoms in this area, you, that's the label that you attach to it, but there isn't any way to specifically say, yes, this is a, a discrete pathophysiological entity that they have. I also see that the, the diagnosis made a lot on based upon the nonspecific symptoms. Without the specific symptoms that are supposed to be there, so if you are fatigued and achy and et cetera, then you know, and you call that fibromyalgia. Well, that's you know, that's just attaching a label to non-specific symptoms. You're supposed to have what we call trigger points, which are very specific places in the muscles that are very tender. And if you have that pattern of trigger points, then I think it's meaningful to say, well, that pattern is called fibromyalgia. We still don't know what it is. We have some ideas, but at least that's the way we use the diagnosis. If you call everybody who's fatigued and achy fibromyalgia, then the diagnosis has no meaning. Now, I believe that the pharmaceutical industry has targeted fibromyalgia for a couple of drugs because um, it is such a w- w- easy diagnosis To make because you can't attach it to these vague symptoms. So I think if they're guilty of anything, it's it's choosing a marketable disease. But they didn't make it up. They weren't the ones to make it up. Um, But that's just you know when when pharmaceutical companies look for an indication for their drug, that's based purely on marketing. They want to decide you know what's the biggest market, what's going to increase the sales of this drug the most, which which indication will. Allow us to speak to which you know specialty of physicians that we want to be able to market to it 's all really a marketing decision, obviously they have a, the science has to be there as well, but often with many drugs, there are different indications that you could go for, like for example, if a drug treats pain or it treats nerve pain, well nerve pain's not a disease, so you have to pick a disease that causes nerve pain. well, what disease that causes nerve pain are you going to pick? post neuralgia or diabetic neuropathy, they're going to make a marketing decision. They're going to choose the one that's going to give the, the biggest sales, the, the biggest marketing options for their drug. But again, they don't get to make up the disease. The other disease for which I hear this claim the most frequently is r- uh, restless leg syndrome. Oh, yeah. Jim Carrey made that comment that you know the pharmaceutical companies made up restless leg syndrome in order to market a drug for it. Well, first of all, the drugs that have the indication for treating RLS already, already had other indications. They were already were on the market with other legitimate indications, so that wasn't a way of rescuing a failed drug. That's a demonstrable myth. The other thing is that restless leg syndrome has existed in the medical literature for decades. I was able to go onto my bookshelf and find an old neurology text with a 40-year-old reference to restless leg syndrome, Wow, 40 years before there was ever a drug marketed for it. And that's is that what they called it back then? Yes, yes. And and in fact, if you dig deeper in the literature, the, the references go back even farther. And I forget what it, – it, it was known by other names even before the term restless, restless leg wow. syndrome came into being. So, yeah, it's like basically 100 years we've known that this has existed. Um, Let me show you something.
4: Perfect example of why I don't want to know what famous people think. <laughs> Right, <laughs> just at all that one. Well,
1: yeah. some it ruins it for Pete, me. I love that guy. Now I have to hate him. Oh, you 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 do have to hate Jim Carrey. Yes, he is oh, totally man. now on board with oh, the yeah. anti anti-vaccin- vaccinationist coup.
2: But coops. he was so good in *Internal out of the spotless
1: mind. He was. <laughs> was <a> <laughs> sorry, so sorry. Oh well, terrible, Move terrible, on. terrible. One <laughs> so yes, yeah. so. Anyway, it, this is just unfounded conspiracy theories. Now, again, this doesn't mean that the pharmaceutical industry is not an industry, that they're not companies looking you know, at their bottom line and that, they're, uh, and that they're beyond reproach. I'm not saying that. It's just that this notion that they make up diseases is nonsense. That is just made-up conspiracy thinking. We do have a name that logical fallacy this week. We actually got our first piece of hardcore hate mail in a long time and it's just so chock full of logical fallacies i thought it would make a good example for us to examine this week so here we go this one comes from melvin lee who gives melvin sorry melvin
5: <laughs> melvin <laughs>
1: who gives his location as america thanks for being helpful Excellent. melvin writes i think that you and all those mofos on that show are full of shit Shouldn't wait <laughs> can you say that you can't full of on the show. Full of can you say mofo How can you honestly say no, there is no Bigfoot, just because I've never seen it? No, crop circles aren't real, because I'm obviously the creator of this world, and I know everything about, period. You (laughs) pussies are just, ugh, words can't describe how I feel about you guys. Who are you? Now, you also have to... Uh, we'll, we'll obviously you know, publish the, the...
2: All the R's are just the letter, yeah. all the U's capital are... Capital R,
1: capital U, who are you?
2: Melvin actually texted this mm, to mm, us. It took him mm, mm, 16 mm. texts.
1: <laughs> if you're, you know, you're going to write a critical
2: email, Cost take
1: the time cents. to spell out the words. You
3: have to assume that the person crafting it can spell the words. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is I a mean, young maybe. kid. This is just a kid.
1: Who are you to tell some that they didn't see something with their own eyes and what they saw was an illusion. Please reread over who are you. You are human. You are not some all-knowing God. You cannot get mad at someone for just reporting what they saw. Were you there too? Actually, they wrote, where you there too? So how could you possibly say they didn't see that they thought they saw? Wait, can we? can you just do that sentence one more time? No. No. They're just reporting it. <laughs> They're just reporting it. This world is full of secrets, and just because it seems mundane doesn't mean it's fake. Another thing, if hundreds of people around the world are seeing something, Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, then it has to be true. Not every situation was a hoax or, or the product of an overactive mind. All I'm saying is we are all humans. You have the same brain as me. You are not the God who created this world. Therefore, you cannot say confidently that something's not there when it obviously is. Holy Jesus. (laughs)
4: <laughs> well, thanks for thank the you email General melvin sergeant hartman yeah. thank you guys thanks all melvin, thanks, thanks, melvin.
3: keep on listening
4: honestly let's honestly answer <laughs> the email because if the guy's been right, so we're gonna it take us all day
2: i think that's one good example of a uh, argument from popularity he said that you know if hundreds of people around the world believe in something then it has to be true but that is not correct because um you know, think about it this way: entire countries think that other entire countries should be obliterated off the map, and you
1: know that doesn't make it true. Yeah, or millions of people, billions sometimes, hold beliefs that are mutually exclusive to beliefs that other millions of people believe. So, either one or both groups of those millions of people have to be wrong. Yeah, and look at all the people that bought the Milli Vanilli albums. That's yeah, true. It's true. <laughs> they
4: all believed they were
2: really singing. They were wrong.
5: There's a lot of lot of straw men. He's throwing around tons of straw men like yeah. there's no Bigfoot just because I've never seen it. Uh, you cannot get mad at someone for just reporting what they saw. Not every, situ- not every situation was a hoax or the product of an overactive mind. That's, that's a false dichotomy. I mean just yeah. f- full of this stuff. A l- lot are of all straw, straw men. Just yeah, mischaracter- exactly. mischaracterizations of, of what our arguments are. He's not even paying attention.
1: Right. So first of all, we don't say – there is no bigfoot there is there are no aliens visiting the earth there are no ghosts what we say is there's no evidence compelling acceptance or belief in any of those things that the people who say that there is bigfoot have not met anywhere near a reasonable burden of proof.
2: The invisible pink unicorn could exist. We are simply agnostic as to its existence. Right. Well,
1: mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's unfalsifiable, we're agnostic. If it's, if it's a scientific proposition, they haven't met the burden of proof or the burden of evidence. And therefore, you know, we, we do not accept it as an established or a proven scientific hypothesis given the current state of evidence. But hey, if someone actually did find a Bigfoot body, and they were, you know, and it stood up to peer review, and, and it wasn't a costume. And It wasn't a costume sold <laughs> we, by hoaxsters. <laughs> we'd, uh, awesome we'd accept DNA. compelling evidence as yeah, compelling. And to
4: add to it, we would actually be excited about it. Sure, that would be mega cool. I
5: don't know, but yeah. I, it would it would smash my worldview, and I would deny it till my dying day. <laughs>
4: Well,
2: only no, but, if
1: Bigfoot wasn't riding atop a magical unicorn. Or a sacred. Now, hang on. There's some other logical fallacies in here. The challenges of finding all oh, of we're them. we're not You done guys yet, are just are picking the low hanging fruit. All so
2: right, far. all right, all right. Well, there's um, an argument from ignorance saying that uh, we can't say that it doesn't exist because we're not gods who created everything and that's know everything.
1: right. Right. That's good. That's an argument from ignorance because it's basically saying that because we don't have perfect infinite knowledge, that we therefore have yeah. no knowledge; that we can't mm-hmm. make any factual judgments about what's likely to be true or not likely to be true scientifically. So, and I'll say that you know we don't know for sure because we're not God that Bigfoot doesn't exist. Therefore, Bigfoot exists, and we and we should also then ad, ad, adhere to the argument ad populi that other people say that they believe it. So that's enough.
3: Oh, there's ad hominem attacks all over the place. Oh,
1: yeah, you know, the pussies.
2: Well, yeah, uh, and not all of us are mofos, technically, um, only Jay.
1: Yeah, You're actually, I'm, you know, I'm a proud mofo.
4: I, I'm, yeah. That one didn't bother me.
1: Um, he also implies that you know, the only way to assess somebody's eyewitness testimony is to be an eyewitness ourselves, when in fact, uh. you can assess eyewitness testimony. By putting it into context, and also we're just uh, saying there are rooms all around the world do that every day, right? That uh, we're just saying there's there's more than one hypothesis. If somebody claims they saw a flying saucer, the there's multiple hypotheses you can derive from that. One is they saw a a flying saucer, but another one is that they were mistaken or they're lying, (laughs) or they just they were simply confusing. A more mundane object, or their memory was contaminated by the right. testimony of another person. There's or lots the alcohol of alcohol they drank. They're, they're, they were in a compromised condition, either sleep deprived or drunk or whatever. There's lots of <laughs> hypotheses, and we would want all, you know, any good scientist should consider all of them and accept the ones that are most supported by the evidence. And also, you know, Occam's razor: you don't accept the one that requires the introduction of a major new Assumption that we're being visited by aliens, when you haven't ruled out the far more likely, uh, simple ones. Right, that the guy simply made a mistake, or maybe he's pulling your leg. That's all. So,
4: I think Melvin's email, actually, as poorly written as it is, and everything, and he's got a negative attitude, and he's you know he's just like sounding off at us. It's not that far away from from where a lot of people stand. Like a
1: lot of people would actually agree with this.
4: You're and absolutely it- right,
1: Jay, and that's why, even though, yeah, we're kind of poking fun at Melvin, partly because of his atrocious, you know, grammar and then the way he constructed this email. But in fact, the same argument—he's he, poorly constructing it—but these same logical fallacies and these same arguments, this is the absolute bread and butter of the true believers or mm-hmm. the anti-skeptics. We hear this all the time: that you don't know everything. You know equating not having infinite knowledge with having no knowledge, the argument from ignorance, the the appeal to you know popularity, we encounter these on a daily basis when confronting people who believe things that are not supported by the scientific evidence. so you know this is not we're not just attacking an easy target. this is absolutely bread and butter anti skepticism, and I would take it one
4: step farther and ask Melvin if he's listening, write us back, pick any topic that you mentioned in here, like Bigfoot as an example. And we'll have a, we will have a real email exchange discussion about it. I promise to do that. If you re- if you want to have a discussion, I'll, I'll tell you everything I think. You could tell me everything you think. And we'll just vet it out over time without swearing at each other, or at least keeping it, keeping it down.
1: And also, yeah. you know, my advice to just generic advice to to people who are going to send a ranting email. He actually the title of the email was rant. So I mean, Melvin knew this was a rant. But, you know, if you're going to do that, tr- tr- make a real effort to understand the position of the person you're disagreeing with. That's always generically a good idea. Because there's nothing more worthless than arguing ag- against a position That the other person doesn't even hold. Because then you're just completely wasting your time, and all you're really declaring is that I don't understand what's going on. I didn't take the time to even understand your position. I'm arguing against a straw man. I mean, it's basically the only thing that you're accomplishing. Well, let's go on to our interview. Okay, we're sitting here now with Ben Goldager. Ben, hey. welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Hi. And you run a website in the UK called Bad Badscience.net?
6: Yeah, yeah, Badscience.net. Tell Available us a, all around the world. Tell us about that. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> the World Wide Web, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I keep forgetting. I understand. You're from the United Kingdom. Um, it's uh Well, it's a sort of mixture of my columns in The Guardian and other bits and bobs that I come across. And it's... Um, maybe about sort of a quarter of it is about quackery. And most of it is about bad science reporting in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if that's as much of a problem in the U S as it is in the UK. It's more of a problem. I mean, in the UK, there've been some phenomenal bogus scare stories. I mean, mm-hmm. there was one about the MRSA sort of killer bacteria that was using a base, essentially a bogus lab that was giving mm-hmm. bogus positive results to undercover journalists. Um, and of course, the, the, the media's MMR hoax in the UK, mm-hmm. um, which I think you're about to get a bit of a run of in the US with the thiamisal thing,
1: which is going to be very interesting. Well, we're already that, that's already past its peak. The thimerosal. Do you think so? Yeah. Well, it was removed, you know, from vaccines in the United States by the end of two thousand and two.
6: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the but, but autism the, the, rates have still gone up. But the media story didn't seem to start until like what this year, really. Well, it's had that
1: a, case. It had a resurgence because of Jenny McCarthy mm-hmm. and uh, Jim Carrey, and because of the uh, mitochondrial DNA case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but in the in the UK, the MMR I think was the bigger story. That dimersol was bigger in the United States. Yeah. Is that still big over there, the MMR? Is that still...
6: It's dwindling. The Observer did a bogus front page story about um, how autism was now up to 1 in 58, basically misunderstanding an unpublished piece of research which was looking at comparing different ways of measuring Mm -hmm. the prevalence of autism so obviously Mm -hmm. if you use the widest net then you get the biggest number but what I find really interesting actually about vaccine scares is is how poorly they propagate between different territories so for example in the UK we had the MMR causes autism because of the measles virus, Mm -hmm. that was the scare and that was mostly, that kind of peaked in 2001, 2002 but it didn't propagate outside of the UK in Mm -hmm. America you have your thiomasan Mm. in in france they have a story about the hepatitis b vaccine causing multiple sclerosis Mm -hmm. but nobody's heard of that outside of france um in the uk in the 80s we had uh uh, whooping cough vaccine causing neurological problems, driven by one uh, fairly eccentric doctor from Scotland, and obviously in in Nigeria at the moment in Kano province, the imams have issued um, uh, a pronouncement saying that the polio vaccine is a plot by the Americans to make Muslims infertile and stop them um, from having children, and and spread HIV. Is that part of the? Yeah. is that part of the scare yeah. as well yeah, yeah yeah oh no yeah no you 're absolutely right yeah and yeah. and you know what 's interesting about that, I guess is that you know whose polio eradication program was on target to have eradicated polio from around the world by now mm-hmm. um, but it 's not and, and and people have you know you can do um, you know PCR and stuff on on polio outbreaks around the world, and they've found that the um, the specific polio virus from Nigeria from Kano province has sort of triggered mm-hmm. outbreaks of polio elsewhere in the world. I mean, it's it's very interesting to me how these vaccine scares are all, you know, structurally quite similar, but they propagate very poorly. And I, I don't think the thiamisal scare could take off in the UK just because the MMR story has been kind of debunked in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it would seem ridiculous to the media, it just wouldn't sort of fit the natural tempo of the, of the stories to then mm-hmm. sort of suddenly go, oh, no, but it does, actually, yeah, right. cause yeah. these problems.
2: So does that mean you think you're, you're pretty much past the worst of, of all of the, those kind of scares in the UK, or do you think oh, that there's another one on the horizon?
6: Certainly not, and actually, for very interesting reasons, definitely not. Um, if you look at France and Austria, you can see that they've they've come very close to electing, well, in the case of Austria, they did elect some seriously sort of right-wing fruitcakes you know bordering on fascism whereas in germany where they had to face up to what they did in world war Two, there was a kind of truth and reconciliation process and they have kind of green and, and liberal governments there's, there's no way I, I don't think that germany could re-elect um a fascist government i think that you have to go through the process of recognizing where you've gone wrong in order to stop going wrong in the future what i find fascinating about the the termination of the mmr hoax in the UK, is that it it came to an end not because the media suddenly went, oh, well, actually, maybe a 12-subject case series report isn't sufficient grounds to say that MMR causes autism. It wasn't because they made a kind of, you know, a, a critical appraisal of all of the literature for and against and went, well, actually, it just doesn't look like MMR causes autism. This was a storm in a teacup. It came to an end because an investigative journalist called Brian Deer, for whom I've got a lot of respect from the Sunday Times, came along and revealed that the lead doctor who was driving the story had received half a million pounds, a million dollars in um, legal sort of, you know, expert witness costs. Um, And so he had, one could argue, uh, a competing interest there. Now, I don't think for one moment that that's, the reason why Wakefield held the views mm-hmm. that he held, right. and I don't think that one man can drive a, a story. But now the media are all queuing up to say, oh, the original research has been debunked when the original research was a 12-subject case series report that never meant anything mm-hmm. about anything. And they're saying, oh, you know, the, the MMR story has been disproven because Andrew Wakefield had half a million quid. Mm-hmm. So right. they're all queuing up to blame this one doctor for the hoax, which was the media's work. Mm-hmm. Collectively, the British media community have created this story and and drove it and they drove it for many many years and the fact that they're now trying to pin it on one doctor i have to say i, I i'm not a big fan of wakefield but i think it's very healthy that there are you know doctors with idiosyncratic views on on medicine i, I think it's a, an absolute bizarre travesty yeah that, that they're pinning it all on him so
5: they're so they're all right but for the wrong reasons
6: yeah and i think that's why they're not kind of inoculated against future cock-ups well, right. you know, you're doing a lot to help
2: media, uh, scientific literacy amongst the media in the UK, but do you ever think that they'll get that realization? Do you ever think they'll finally realize what they're doing wrong? Well,
6: I don't think you can stop people from producing stupid stories, but I think you can add some sense into the mix. So often when I, when I talk, you know, people say, I do lots of talks in sort of epidemiology departments and sort of medical statisticians, just because... The jokes can be a bit more sophisticated and interesting (laughs) now. And people, they're often kind of outraged and they sort of say, well, look, we need some laws. These people need to be, you know, we should be able to chop the fingers off bad journalists. And I just don't think it's realistic. But what you can do is... Approach newspapers. I mean, I just rang them up one day and said, you know, can I write for you? And they said, yes. I mean, there's nothing, there's no sort of great mystery. And I think you can add in more sense to kind of dilute the nonsense, or at least people give people an opportunity of seeing some sense. Because otherwise, unless people who understand evidence get in there and explain the mechanics of why it is that you hold a belief on the back of some published evidence, then science, at least in Britain, is only really portrayed as being about authoritative truth statements from arbitrary Mm -hmm. cultural figures called scientists in white coats. You know, scientists today said, scientists today denied, scientists today refuted. But it's never, you know, scientists today said, oh, well, there's this study, and it shows this, and for that reason, we think Mm. this. That, that right. doesn't happen. And right. I think, you know, by, by adding that into the mix, you do something very powerful. And
1: the Wakefield story reflects that because it was about the authority of Wakefield and then when yeah. that was knocked down, the story was knocked down, not about the evidence and the logic that of whether or not there's any link between vaccines and autism.
6: It was about the authority of Wakefield, but it was also about human interest versus these white coat guys saying there's nothing to worry about. So yeah. on the one hand, you had a worried parent and on the other side, you had a scientist saying, you know, oh, there's nothing to worry about. And, you know, that wouldn't reassure me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know it would it would look like a like a cover up it would look or it would look dismissive right
1: so like us, you're using the new media blogs you know to try to fight this bad journalism
6: in in the u k How do you think that's going how How much play does your blog get? It gets a lot of visitors and it gets a lot of links and The thing that's most exciting is that it, there are lots of other people who are now blogging in the UK who do a really, really great job of pulling apart just sort of silly bits and bobs. But it's, it's great when there's this kind of mass effect because somebody will publish, you know, a a tedious, you know, memory of water paper in homeopathy and you'll be like, I can't be bothered to pull this apart, but someone somewhere will, you know, that burning sense of, you know, someone somewhere is wrong on the internet. (laughs) I must (laughs) put them right and that's that's fantastic um the only thing that disappoints me a little bit i guess is that i'm not as agitated about quackery as some people are you get a lot of you get a lot of quite sanctimonious stuff Mm -hmm. from people kind of saying you know homeopathy is this public health scandal and i i don't think that's true i think homeopathy is really interesting i think it's a really fascinating cultural phenomenon i think it's really interesting that at a time when doctors are trying really hard to, to work collaboratively with patients, explain evidence to them and make decisions in concert with their patients. I think it's a tragedy that while doctors are trying to do that, quacks and the media are, are really kind of undermining the public's understanding yeah. of evidence. But I don't think that, I don't think that quackery is, is p- sort of practically really dangerous or anything. I, I think it's funny and interesting. Yeah. I think it's interesting that there's a lot of bloggers who are really keen to pick up on mocking quacks. Which is funny and it's great and it produces great content. The thing that I that I wish there was more of is people taking down bogus news stories mm-hmm. because you know that's the thing that needs to be done so much more because that's kind of the the more culturally influential end of stuff, you know. But yeah. um, but I guess maybe they're not such easy hits. or I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why it is. Well, the news cycle is very quick. I mean, you got to do it very quickly,
1: right? You find that if a news story yeah. hits, you've got to get your blog that day or you're going to be missed by the news cycle.
6: I guess so. I'm not sure that's true, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm often sort of cheerfully writing on things a couple of weeks after they've gone, um, but that's because I'm just – smug enough to imagine that i can stand outside of the uh, of the news thing i mean i actually think that's a really interesting example of, of the one of the more subtle aspects of how the media misrepresent science mm-hmm. i don't think science makes a very good news subject mm-hmm. i think science is naturally a feature subject because yes. it's about emerging themes supported by a whole raft of evidence from a number of different disciplines that emerges over the course of many years when you focus all of your science reporting on being about a news story about a sudden breakthrough of a single piece of research, that's actually quite misrepresenting in, in a subtle way because, firstly, the, the stuff that makes a finding newsworthy actually make it quite likely to be wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't. it's incongruent with, with previous results, right. for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it misrepresents stuff in that way. Uh, Obsessing over things being news, newsy, I think, is actually a bit of a mistake. You know, I think... I think people who are communicating science should feel cooler with just sitting back and going, "What do we know about you know functional brain imaging research and schizophrenia? You know, mm-hmm. there's a really interesting story there. Right, you know? right. and it doesn't yeah. have to be new."
1: Yeah, that's yeah. I, I totally agree. I think the, the news cycle and the obsession with the story mm. is really antithetical to the way science really works, which is taking your time and putting it together into the big picture. And, yeah. uh, oftentimes I think you do that well, and that's what we try to do as well, is sort of take the news story and say, let's back up now and put it into context, which the journalists yeah. don't do.
6: Right. Well, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I mean, I think um, there's a really interesting split in in certainly British news media, which has been studied quite carefully, which is specialist health and science reporters are actually very good at their job. They know a lot of background, they know how to critically appraise research, and they will often make a fairly good stab of of doing that in their articles, as long as they can get it past the desk. But what you find is that whenever a story becomes a big political hot potato, whenever it becomes a big news story, like the MMR vaccine or the GM food, the Frankenstein food front pages of 1998 – you find that the stories get taken out of the hands of the specialists and put into the hands of the generalists. So the MMR story, especially after the question became, did Tony Blair's son have the MMR vaccine? Mm -hmm. A fact that was mentioned in 33% of news stories about MMR in 2002, when Andrew Wakefield's name was only in 25%. So Mm -hmm. Tony Blair's son was a bigger figure in MMR media coverage than Andrew Wakefield was. What you find is that also, when there's a big story like MMR, MMR was twice as likely to be written about by generalist journalists as by mm-hmm. uh, as um, a story about ge- uh, about cloning, for example. And in the first two days after the Frankenstein food story hit the newsstands, not a single one of the news or comment pieces in the entirety of the British news media was written by, by a, a science, science correspondent. Science journalist,
1: yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a big problem. Uh, ben, you have a, a book coming out based upon your blog. Why don't you tell us about that?
6: Yeah, yeah. It's called uh, Bad Science, Maintaining uh, Brand Homogeneity. Um, and that's, uh, it's coming out with Fourth Estate HarperCollins in September. And it should be very good, uh, although it's very, very UK-centric because mm-hmm. I write about misrepresentation of science in the media, and the media that I know very well is UK media. And I, I've got this sort of huge raft of examples from sort of you know, a thousand stories now mm-hmm that's not an estimate, that's like the number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've kind of been able to, um, it kind of grew out of this bet I had with a friend of like we both teach epidemiology and mm-hmm. it was like, I bet I could teach the whole of epi, or Epidemi Holiday as the medical students call it. Holiday. <laughs> um, I bet I can teach the whole of epi only using examples of people getting things wrong in broadsheet national newspapers (laughs) and it turned out to be true but but what i'd really like actually is is to get a better handle on on um the ways that science is misrepresented in american media because it Mm -hmm. would be great to um you know branch out and uh I mean, I'm not mercenary about selling the book. I accept that I will uh, lead a, a life of obscurity in academia or in a rented ex. I, I fear that, that would that be UK. a
3: volume of books if you attempted to do that, not just a single book.
6: Right, that would be like Churchill's history of World War One. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: but I'll tell you though, I mean, you're following your your, your blog that the examples are completely applicable to the United States. I think they'll be very... Yeah, yeah.
6: Well, actually, I mean, if there are people out there listening who know about this stuff, what I'd really like, ben at badscience.net, what I'd really like is is for people to send me sort of examples from American media that, Mm -hmm. that mirror the cock-ups in mm-hmm. in british media are we allowed to say cock-ups in a christian country now? are we allowed yeah. to say it twice Gosh. Have I said you're, you're twice? british you're allowed mm-hmm. to
3: say
1: it now well sometimes <laughs> the stories are the same like i think you covered the regenerating really finger story that was hilarious I mean, I mean
6: out of out of nowhere and it was it was like 3 years old as yeah, well yeah yeah but it was in, it was the bbc who who yeah. who reignited that story and again it was um it was not not a science or health correspondent right. it was the bbc's new york correspondent and you could see he was like he was beside himself with excitement he really thought he had found like nobel prize winning <laughs> stuff with this like backwards guy in his model shop his finger had mm-hmm. grown back and he you know he the, this sense of holy reverence as he talked about the science mm-hmm. was just extraordinary and completely disproportionate to the reality which is that lop the top of your finger off and it just grows back that's just yeah. nature it's just We're healed habits. naturally and yeah. yeah.
1: you're, you're hawking your brother's you know, new uh, new products. company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should
2: but, tell him uh, about the holes in my for my earrings that closed up after I didn't you
1: know, wear earrings
2: <laughs> for a while.
6: I mean, it's really interesting that there's this kind of recurring theme in all of these stories in bad science and the media and also in quackery where we're, we're sort of bringing in these really childish fables. And we're letting them take the credit for the amazing things that the body does. You know, like mm-hmm. when, when people were bringing in that placebo pill, mm-hmm. and I'm, I've got sort of, I'm in two minds about the ethics of giving placebos. I think it might be useful in some situations, but, you know, giving placebos to kids when they've got a cold. And I kind of think, well, okay, you want to tell your kid a reassuring story, here's a pill you'll get better back. But, you know, how much more amazing and empowering would it be to say, look, at the moment, there's this, this small, tiny organism, microscopic organism that's gone into your body, it's called a virus, and it's really clever. What it does is, it exploits the machinery in your body that makes new parts for you, and it it uses that to make copies of itself. And also it releases these other things that irritate the parts of your body, and that's why you've got a cough and a sore throat. But your body's really clever, because on the surface of every cell, it's holding out copies of all of the stuff that's happening inside, and the immune system cells are, are, are floating around, and they have a look at what's in every cell by looking at this stuff that's being held out on the surface and when they see something that's alien like that they go in and they call in more of their friends who arrive following like a smoke trail back to the source of the fire along a chemotactic path and then they go in and they find the bad guys and they wrap them up in like a little ball and then they squirt bleach at them and they kill them and that to me you know why let a sugar pill I yeah. finally
4: understand. <laughs> why let a sugar
6: pill take the credit for that? It's just insane, you know, and why let why let a healer take the credit for that? Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. why let, you know, and, and, and why let some magic powder take credit for the totally amazing fact mm. that if you cut the top of your finger off, it grows back like new. I mean, that yeah. that's a miracle, you know, yeah. quite apart from the fact that in the stories they were sort of talking about, Powder is made from endothelial cells. Yeah. Yeah. As if, like, no, no, no. Yeah, it was was extracellular. No, it was was extracellular (laughs) matrix. And it was like, and these are made of extracellular matrix. And you're like, extracellular matrix surrounds the cells of every single Mm. cell in all of the bodies of all of the people in the world. (laughs) Extracellular, you know, there's more extracellular matrix in the world than you could shake a stick
1: at.
6: Yeah. That's like the super spectacular. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: Space age technology is 50 years old. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, Ben, we certainly appreciate what you're doing. Uh, We love your your blog and your your articles for The Guardian. Uh, I feel like we're just getting started. Maybe we'll have a chance to sit down again, if not here, sometime in the future. Yeah, yeah, cool. And uh, thanks again for sitting with us. Thanks, Ben. Cheers.
6: Thank Thank you.
0: And now, Randy speaks.
1: Randy, tell us how you think the media deals with issues of science and skepticism.
0: Rather badly, generally speaking, because the media is interested in sensational stories. Well, they say they want news, but they want sensational news. Uh, you know very well the puppy dog down a sewer is going to get much more attention uh, than some political hack uh, in, in, the, in the local community unless they have something to do with puppies going down sewers. The media is that way, and it's understandable. They want to sell newspapers and programs and whatnot. I've I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Most people in the media are educated in the humanities, and they don't have a good grasp of science and, uh, and reality and how things work. They're very easily deceived. They're very naive in many respects. And they're purposely naive, perhaps, because uh, they want the story uh, to be there. Now... An excellent example of that on a very uh, high level is an ABC TV program that I uh, did, I guess, last year. They got me all the way into New York City to uh, discuss the John of God situation. Now, John of God is a so-called uh, psychic healer and whatnot in Brazil. And he's doing very simple tricks that uh, carnival people have known for a long time, uh, sticking uh, sticks up your nose and whatnot, and... And he actually sticks forceps up the the patient's noses. I went armed for bear. I went to New York City, and they stuck me in a studio in front of a video camera. I had with me videotapes, props, and whatnot. And I I spoke with uh, John Quinones. He was the host on the, the show. They interviewed me for two and a half hours. Two and a half hours they interviewed me. I was on with uh, a fellow named uh, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Mehmet Oz, a very, very famous cardiac surgeon in New York City. Great reputation, but totally woo-woo. He actually has people, nurses, especially trained in the art of balancing the human uh, aura, walking around in his operating room when he's got a patient on the table with his chest cavity open and his heart being fixed. And Mehmet Oz will throw up his hands when told by the nurse that she's coming through to balance the man's aura by passing his ha- her hands over it. Uh, incredible. Incredible that a man in this day and age, let alone a very highly educated man like Dr. Mamadaz would be involved in such quackery, such absolute foolishness, such juvenile uh, approach to to reality. But nonetheless, he is a great cardiac surgeon and I would trust myself to him anytime as long as he kept the woman with the funny gloves out of the place. But uh, he was on the program as well. Uh, it ended up that um, the program used nine seconds of what I said. Nine seconds out of two and a half hours. They didn't use any of the recorded material, any of the references to the videotapes with demonstrations of how the, the forceps up the nose trick is done. It's, as I say, it's an old carnival stunt. But they used a great deal of Mamadaz. They used quotations from him. And he even said something for a doctor. Very foolish. He said that sticking the forceps up the nose came close to certain glands in the the head and whatnot. But he didn't notice, because he doesn't operate on the head, I guess, that there's a half-inch layer of bone in between where the forceps go up. Now, is it supposed to be a magnetic influence or a proximity influence, a capacity effect? I don't know. But he mentioned that as a possibility. He really is a woo-woo artist. Uh, unfortunately, with all of that education and, and, and very extensive training and great expertise. So they used nine seconds. But they used it so unfairly, they had me saying, and this took nine seconds, there are no greater liars in the world than quacks, except for their patients. Now, that was, that was broadcast like that. But the complete quotation was, as that early American philosopher Ben Franklin once said, there are no greater liars in the world than quacks, except for their patients. So I was attributing it to Ben Franklin, but they cut that out because that made it look as if I was stealing it from Ben Franklin. And I got emails, Steve, from all over the world, from people saying, you're quoting Ben Franklin. You stole that. You should have attributed it to him. I did. But they edited it out, and they edited out the complete explanation of how the force of the nose trick was done and the various other things that uh, John of God does. Now, this is totally irresponsible. It's It borders on the criminal because what that does, ABC television in a feature program had this number about John of God, and that, I'm sure, brought hundreds of Americans to travel off to Brazil and spend their hard-earned money On this quackery. And John of God, I'm sure, was very happy with it. And they never did a retraction of any kind.
5: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And then my panel of skeptics tries to tell me which one they think is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week?
5: Uh, yes. All right, here we go.
1: Mm. Number one, astrophysicists have discovered the upper limit for the mass of a black hole. Item number two, new research suggests that the rise of the dinosaurs over their contemporaries was due to luck and not any inherent competitive edge. And item number three, new study in humans demonstrated improved strength and performance following transplantation of muscle stem cells. Bob, go first. You You
5: bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Upper limit for the mass of a black hole. That does sound kind of bizarre. I mean, what the hell is preventing uh, a black hole from just getting bigger and bigger and bigger? Um, So on the surface, that doesn't sound right if you think about it. Dinosaur Dominance due to luck um, and, and not any inherent competitive edge. Um, I mean, that makes sense on the surface, absolutely. Um, a, lot of, a lot of about evolution and, uh, and whether you go extinct or not, a lot of it has to do with luck. Um, it definitely can play a part. Um, maybe that makes too much sense. New study in humans demonstrated improved strength and performance following transplantation of muscle stem cells. That, that sounds pretty cool, and that would be awesome. I'm going to say that's science. I'm going to say that um, the dinosaur um, dominance, being luck, that sounds a little fishy. I'm going to say that that is fiction.
1: Okay, Evan? Well,
3: um, upper limits for the mass of a black hole. Mm, I mean, there would have to be some kind of upper limit, wouldn't there? It's just a matter of discovering it. One would think, but I'm not too sure about that. Um, Dinosaurs having an advantage over contemporaries was due to luck. Yeah. How, but how are they, right, how are they able to determine that, you know, how do how you do equate luck in a scientific context? I'm not quite sure really what what's being said there. And then the improved strength and performance following transplantation of muscle stem cells. Sure. Yes. Finding out all kinds of new things about all kinds of stem cells these days cutting edge science totally plausible. So I'll agree with Bob that the dinosaur one is fiction. Okay, Rebecca?
2: See know, I'm not so sure because I, I'm pretty sure I read something about this and that they um, they actually found these skeletons of an elderly pack of velociraptors surrounded by a field of four-leaf clovers and um, a small pile of rabbit's feet next to them. So... I believe that that's actually science and uh, I also think that a black hole should have an upper limit because otherwise um, well, you know, it's just too scary to uh, contemplate. So I think that transplanting muscle stem cells I don't think we're quite to the point where we can improve strength and performance doing that and that sounds like are we doing studies on humans with muscle stem cells? That doesn't seem like it's going to work. I don't know. I, I think that's fiction. So okay,
1: yeah. all right,
2: Jay.
4: Yeah, the the upper limit to the black hole, for the the upper limit to the mass of a black hole, I would just assume that it makes a lot of sense. Like Evan said, that someone would be able to sit down and, and run the math and be able to theoretically figure that out. Um. New research suggests that the rise of the dinosaurs over their contemporaries was due to luck and not any inherent competitive edge. mm, that one seems fishy to me for some reason. How can they determine if it was just luck? I wonder how the fossil record could could demonstrate that, and the last one new study in humans demonstrated improved strength and performance following transplantation of muscle stem cells yeah, i don't you know I think I would have heard this if that happened. I think it would be it would be much bigger news, it, you know, definitely above the waterline where I would have read it, with the the amount of reading I do on science on science news. I, I don't think that one's science. I think that one is was altered by Steve.
1: Okay, so you all agree that astrophysicists have discovered the upper limit for the mass of a black hole, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, this all was the most counterintuitive one for me when I first read it. This is science. And, mm-hmm. you know, like Bob, my reaction was, well, what would stop it from just absorbing more mass? What would happen, you know, if a black hole reached its upper limit and then, you know, if there was more material to suck in? What would happen? Well, it turns more out astrophys- it. astrophysicists have calculated the theoretical upper limit for a mass of a black hole to a Yale astronomer, in fact. Priyamvada Natarajan. And what, what he suspects is as a mechanism that as the black hole gets to about 10 billion solar masses, wow. that um, any matter falling into it would cause the radiation away of an equal amount of matter, of mass. So it reaches, it reaches an equilibrium point you know, where it would just you know, re- evaporate or radiate away the same amount of mass. Wait, as was but you're not talking it.
5: about Hawking radiation though. Uh, my interpretation was that no, you've got no, an inf- no, Hawk- accretion disk radiation.
1: Yes, that's right.
5: That's a, yeah. That's a big difference. And and this, my understanding though, Steve, was that this isn't a, a hard rule. If you've got so much infalling matter that you you would reach a point where the radiation being generated from the heat of the accre- of the accretion disk mm-hmm. would actually blow away solar ma- any material that would have fallen into the black hole. So, so you've got a, a, kind of like a soft limitation in that way. But if you've got a 10 billion solar mass black hole and it bumps into a neutron star or, an, or a smaller black hole, nothing's going to stop that from, from getting bigger than 10 well, yeah, billion. But that's,
1: I, I was not clear on that point from from the article that I read.
5: That, that's, that was my question, too. That was, that was my understanding from reading, the, reading some articles and, and reading a lot of the comments from people who seemed to know what they, what they were talking yeah. about. What I know about black holes, what is going to stop it to go, to go above it if it's as I described?
1: Yeah, but the, the press release makes it sound like that's just one possible explanation, but that other things were used to derive this upper limit. You know, we, we might have to do some follow-up to try to sort that out. But that was that was exactly the question that I had: is this a hard limit or a soft limit? You you seem to think that it was a soft limit, absolutely. but I, my interpretation, absolutely of, of the press release, was that it was a hard limit, and this was just one of the mechanisms proposed for that would prevent the black hole from getting bigger than about 10 billion solar masses. But interesting either way. Uh, so let's go on to number two. New research suggests that the rise of the dinosaurs over their contemporaries was due to luck and not any inherent competitive edge, and Bob and Evan, you both said that this one was fiction.
4: So it's down mm-hmm. to uh, Bob and Evan and me and Rebecca teamed Jay up and Rebecca again.
1: Rebecca thought that this one is science, and That's this right. one mm-hmm. is science. Aha! <laughs> <laughs> but you guys y- suck. You guys did ask an my run. question: Is how Mofos. would how would they know? How would you even make this determination? Yeah,
5: I don't know. You, if you dominate the planet for two hundred two hundred million years, there's got to be some competitive edge in there.
3: Well, explain what luck is in this context.
1: Talk to us, Steve. So, well, luck would be that there was a there was an environmental change, and you happened. To benefit from that change, as opposed like to humans, you mammals. just outcompeted, you outcompeted your contemporaries. Now, what they did was they, uh, and this is um, Steve Brusati from Bristol University Department of Earth Sciences, and they looked at the species that were around at the er, you know early in the career of the dinosaurs. And what they found that the other major group at the time was the the which were um, alligator-like reptiles. At that time, they were a more diverse group with greater disparity and actually were dominant over the early dinosaurs at their time. He said, if you were you know, in the early Triassic, for example, and you looked at these two groups, you would predict, based upon... Their you know diversity disparity and dominance that the Kuro Tarsans would have a much greater chance of dominating the future than the dinosaurs would. Uh, so by any measure of who was winning, the the kurotarsons seemed to be winning in terms of spreading into more ecosystems and you know having greater numbers etc. But then two things happened. There was the Carnian Norian event two hundred twenty eight million years ago. Uh, which caused a lot of extinctions. But both the dinosaurs and the crurotarsans survived that, but that did eliminate a lot of competition. And then 200 million years ago, there was the end Triassic extinction, which resulted from a period of significant global warming, you know, the increasing temperature. And the dinosaurs weathered the increase in temperature and the crurotarsans the didn't. Uh, but b- until that climate change occurred, the crurotarsans were were out-competing the dinosaurs, if anything. So that's what they mean by luck. They just happened to benefit from a change in the climate when if, you know, all things being equal, they were not directly out-competing their contemporaries. Which means that number three, new study in humans demonstrated improved strength and performance following transplantation of muscle stem cells, is fiction. Whatever. But what is true is that they just identified (laughs) what the muscle stem cell is. They didn't really know which cell was in fact the muscle stem cell. Crap, that's what I read. Oh, yeah. yes, right, perhaps that's what you read. So, and it turns out to be the satellite cell, which is a, a type of progenitor cell that um exists near the muscles and or you know in the muscle tissue and when in you know in in repair and exercise, et cetera, will generate new muscle tissue. But we haven't successfully transplanted muscle stem cells into people. That has not happened yet.
4: Stem cells are made of people, <laughs> and I hate when
5: a vague memory of reading an article totally kills you. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that sucks to be me. you,
1: Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta well, stop reading, guys.
5: So, y- Steve really Jay, is a Jay, that tonight. that ended oh, a yeah. run I had. That was like a nine w- uh, nine winning streak run. So,
1: how long was your run? Okay. <laughs> Four foot one. So, Four for one. Well, congratulations, Jay and Rebecca. Good job. Yay, Yay. Rebecca. Yay. Jay do
4: you have a quote
1: for us this week
4: I have a quote this week from a man called David Hume he uh, lived 1711 to 1776 that was a pretty good year wasn't it and I'm always surprised when I read quotes from people that lived that lived centuries ago especially ones that are exceptionally logical or rational and maybe uh, maybe I'm skewed or maybe you know just from reading a lot of quotes from from very smart people during that time I don't know I'd like to to know if I'm just thinking that they're, they're overly rational for their time, or maybe people were more rational in the past.
1: Well, that you know was the age of enlightenment for a reason, Jay.
4: David Hume was a Scottish philosopher, an economist, a historian, and an important figure in Western philosophy. And he said or wrote, When men are most sure and arrogant, they are commonly most mistaken, giving views to passion without the proper deliberation which alone can secure them from the grossest absurdities. David Hume. I think this also uh, is a good quote to to go with uh, Melvin's email to us. Melvin Lee. (laughs) Melvin Lee.
1: (laughs) Confused listener. Okay,
2: the David Hume one didn't make me laugh. Confused (laughs) listener.
1: Just a quick reminder that October 10th, New York City is the uh, New York City's Skeptics' first annual anniversary event. They're going to have James Randi speak for them. And then October 11th, In Fairfield, Connecticut, Perry's hometown, we're going to have the first annual Perry DeAngelis Memorial Lecture.
2: Yay! Yay.
1: Saturday, October 11th, noon to three at the Fairfield Theatre Company. We have the information on our uh, message board and on our Facebook page. And Jake, can we put that on the website? I know we're in the middle of the update and everything, but we can just throw that information on the website. I will put it on the homepage. Uh, And we have confirmed, confirmed guests... Steve Mursky from Scientific American. He's awesome. And Terrence Hines. Nice. Excellent skeptic and neuroscientist and author of Pseudoscience and the Paranormal and a cool guy. Fine, Yeah, he's a good dude. Well, thank you all again for joining me this week. (laughs) Going crazy. Yes, it
3: was good joining you.
1: Fun as always. (laughs) And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission.